at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, October 2nd, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour with you answering your finance and investment questions. And we're going to do that with a very straightforward mix of educational content as well as actionable ideas for you to to think about, maybe implement in your portfolio, depending on your situation, where you're starting from, where you're going, etc. So our mind uh, today is about giving you that unbiased perspective developed with over 20 plus years of investment experience. I'm going to go into the market performance in a little bit. I'm going to run down some show topics. But right now, we're going to answer our first caller question now. Hey, guys. Love the show, and thank you very much. I was calling about the ticker PAC. That's Papa Alpha Charlie. That's Aeroporte Pacifico. It's one of the Mexican airport stocks. They own uh, Tijuana and Guadalajara airports, among others. And I'm wondering if you guys had any thoughts on this ticker. It looks like it's trying to roll over, so I was wondering if maybe at a buy point and um, any ideas about it. Thank you very much. Bye. All right, looking at PAC, I'm not going to try to pronounce the name, but yes, this is a, a Mexican airport operator, and they have airports in Guadalajara, Tijuana, Puerto Vallarta, San Jose del Cabo, Montego Bay, Hermosillo, and among other uh, uh, Mexican cities. And this was a good way to play the development and the growth of the Mexican economy, in my mind. You know, the more income growth there will be within Mexico, that means more Mexican citizens can travel. That will improve uh, their their revenue, uh, as well as more shipments coming into those airports, buying physical goods, uh, and then development of various cities, that's certainly going to help them as well. And I've talked about more regionalization of supply chains, and Mexico is going to be a big beneficiary of that. So I like what you're looking at. Now, this is in a decent downtrend as of now, uh, near term. But longer term, go zoom out to a weekly chart, and this is in an uptrend. And it is near some major support around the 100-week moving averages, average, which is around $160 per share. Now we're at 166 So we're not quite there yet, but pretty darn close. And this has a nice 5.5% dividend yield. Its revenue growth is, is very solid. And it's trading at a mid-teens multiple, which is fine uh, considering its level of growth. Now, obviously, there are... Geopolitical concerns, we obviously have the cartel issues in Mexico, so that's always something uh, to take into account, but this is a solid balance sheet, it's trading at modest uh, multiples, and it has pulled back to support. So overall, I'm going to give this one a thumbs up, that is P 
P-A-C. P-A-C is the symbol. All right. Now, we have a lot of, a lot of ground to cover. We have 45 minutes to do it, and we're going to focus on a few things. One is how a recession might be coming and what a defensive strategy might look like. Some analysts are saying the recession is inevitable, and in that kind of environment, investors should be playing defense. So we're going to touch on that. How accurate is this analysis, and what should you do about it? Okay, We're also going to touch on fiscal dominance. Fiscal dominance, this is a big change in even the most monetary policy circles, the main focus has been on what governments are going to do in regards to spending and their deficits. So we're going to look at that. Also, home builders. Home builders had been one of the best sectors in on the year. But that trade is fizzled to some degree. So we're going to talk about why that might be. And is that a short-term issue or something that's now structurally long-term? Okay. And then lastly, surge pricing. You know, if you take an Uber, for example, you have to pay surge pricing in certain times. And could that spread to the rest of the economy? So we're going to look at that. We also have some voice bank questions to play. We also have iTunes review questions to go over and one that came in via our website. And our perspective today looks at the most successful stocks in history and why they have become big winners. So let's talk about the market overall today. It was a decidedly strong down day. The mid caps and small caps were hurt the most. Large cap growth certainly did the best. That was actually up on the day. So that was interesting. Apple up 1.5%. Tesla up about a half a percent there, even though they had disappointing earnings. Rivian down 2.5%. Let's see, who are the big losers? Any major big losers? Yeah, Nextera Energy. A lot of the bond proxies. Utility stocks, for example, they've certainly have been taking it on the chin, as well as green energy, plug power down 10%, Sunrun down 10% today. And this is the area that's the it's probably the weakest. Everyone thought that due to the Inflation Reduction Act, there would be money flowing into solar energy and solar the solar business. But what you're seeing is how interest rate sensitive they are because these systems are financed for the, mo- for the most part. Yeah, there are some that aren't, but most of them are financed. And when you go from being able to finance that, uh, them at 5% to now financing them at 10 12 15%, that is a huge difference in monthly costs. And guess what? Those interest payments start to overwhelm the cost savings. Okay, And that's a big reason why these stocks are down big. So very interesting to see that along with those bond proxy sectors. So it just shows you, you really need to, in this environment, understand what type of companies are the most interest rate sensitive. And pretty much in every sector, you're going to find a subsector that is the most sensitive. And those are the ones that are taking the biggest brunt of the sell-off in today's markets. All right. Now, as we go to a break, let me remind you the 
check out our new Invest.Classroom Classroom series. It's now streaming for free on our YouTube channel, and it's episode eight, how to gauge the U.S. economy. People tend to look at the headlines and see GDP numbers and inflation news, and then think that they know where the economy is going. But in reality, it's not about looking through the rearview mirror, which a lot of economic numbers that you see, headline numbers that you see, are shedding light on. It's about what is in front of you, where the economy is going. So we touch on the various indicators, the leading economic indicators that you must watch. So head over to our YouTube channel and check out how to gauge the U.S. economy. Now, the phone lines are open waiting for your questions at 888-99-CHART. Justin Klein talks about the KPP Financial Premium Newsletter. I want to remind you that this is a time where you probably need some guidance and you're tuning in to try to get our view of the markets. And we only have an hour here. And and sometimes the way I distill each day can be maybe not enough, maybe not enough time. And so our premium newsletter is a great tool for especially newer investors trying to learn some things. The KPP Financial Premium Newsletter comes to your mailbox every Saturday. Learn how to analyze the market, learn what the economic numbers mean, learn how to manage a portfolio, maybe get an idea of what are good companies to be at least looking at. Maybe you don't buy it today, but you should always have a watch list of companies that, hey, these are interesting, these have good businesses. And if they get the right price, maybe I should buy them. So our newsletter is a great tool for that. Subscribe anytime at investtalk.com. The stock market is constantly changing, and serious investors know that they need to modify their portfolio assets to fit the times. And now, with more than 50 million downloads, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley reaffirm their commitment to providing unbiased finance and investment guidance here on InvestTalk. 888-99-CHART. Now, our main focus point today touches on the coming recession. Now, a recession is always coming. There's always a a recession, I guess you could say, around the corner. Depends on how far around the corner you're talking about. And there are a lot of analysts that are saying that is creeping up. And I would say for the first time in a while... I kind of agree. I kind of agree that a recession is likely, very likely in 2024. Very likely. Now, I went into this year saying that later in the year, which you know was at least six months out, that we are, we have a decent chance of going to a recession. Because of the lag effect of monetary policy. But as the year has gone on, you've kind of had multiple factors that have continued to push that off. And a lot of it has to do with really rediscovering the new environment that is a bit different than we have experienced before. And that that new environment is being able to earn money on your cash. Consumer balance sheets being very 
robust and healthy. Maybe not government balance sheets, but consumer balance sheets. And then you have demographics where the labor force is shrinking. And that is a challenge for businesses. It makes it harder to lay off workers, harder to give smaller bonuses and raises. And all of those factors keep the consumer relatively afloat. And thus, it's been pushed off, continues to be pushed off. But we all know at some point, the dam will break. But there's been a lot of right, mud and, and, and cement to put on that dam to keep it together for a while. But the pressure of those higher rates continue. And they continue to build because of that lag effect of monetary policy. Now, this analyst talks about how they recommend conservative assets like cash. And frankly, I think short-term bonds are not necessarily a bad idea for a good portion of the portfolio. Does recommends agency debt, mortgage-backed securities, and companies that have long-duration capital. And I think that's probably the most important thing here is that in an inflationary environment, equities are still a better hedge against inflation. But that's only this only the case for companies that aren't overly indebted, that are subject to higher interest rate payments and refinancing, and those that have, say, harder assets that tend to go up with inflation. Think of energy, basic materials. And so I always think of these with nuance, these recessions with nuance. What does this recession mean compared to previous recessions? It's not 08. The consumer balance sheet in 08 was horrible. Horrible. Why? Because people were leveraging up to buy homes they couldn't afford. Now, people are not very levered with homes they can afford with locked-in low rates. No, wait, it was a lot of adjustable rate mortgages. That's when the arms became popular. And then people were buying big SUVs, very gas-inefficient cars, and oil prices went up. Remember, oil prices peaked in 08. Well over $100 a barrel. Gas was expensive for that time. And that pressured consumer balance sheets. And then obviously corporations were pressured as well. So it's a different environment today, which means that, sure, are we going to a recession? Yes, I think for the first time in a while, I'm saying I think it's closer than most people realize. Whereas being in the air was farther than most people realize. But it's a, probably a minor recession compared to what most people are thinking in their mind. All right, we're going into a quick break. So give me a call now at 888-99-CHART.
Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy, discipline, and the right information. That means you'll have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein is ready to provide his unbiased answers. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go to New York, talk with James, looking at Next Era Energy. You own it or looking to buy it? I own it. Uh, I've owned it for some time. Um, It's really getting beat up lately, but I'm still thinking of holding it. I don't think that I'm really ready to panic out of it necessarily. Um, I just wanted to see what your prospects were moving forward. Well, this is the double whammy of a company that's focused on clean energy, and it's also a utility company. So it it has a good amount of debt on its balance sheet. So I guess you could say triple whammy here. And that's the issue, and that's why this is plummeting. Uh, It has about $72 billion in long-term debt, about $90 billion, $91 billion in total net debt on its balance sheet. And it is down big. It peaked out at the end of 2021 around 90, was it $93 per share? Now we're at 52. And it's had a big leg lower as of late. Now I will say this is pretty high volume over the past week or so, which tells me there's probably some near term, there's probably a near term bounce. But this is a bounce I would sell. I would sell. Like I said, triple whammy. It's a utility company, so it's a bond proxy. It's very high debt levels, and it it's green energy focused, which in a lot of ways is an expensive way to produce energy as opposed to your traditional uh, ways forward. So I would not own this. Once again, near term, probably get a bounce. But these are the type of names you want to avoid owning in these markets. So that's uh, that's my take. Any other questions? Uh, when you say near term, you think in the next month, maybe longer? Yeah. Month, I mean, if if we get treasury rates to peak out near term, if there's some sort of behind the scenes panic like there was last fall, this is kind of a redex of what happened last fall. Uh, there were some uh, machinations behind the scenes to improve liquidity. One was drawing down the treasury general account for one example, and that was bringing uh, the, the treasury rates down and liquidity back to the market. If there's some sort of panic, like uh, issues with the gilt markets, the JGB market, like there was last fall, you could see rates drop and this will give this a nice rally, but that's a big if it's a big if. Uh, but yeah, it, it might might last a, a month, might last two months. But you can see longer term, we are in a secular inflationary environment. Rates are going up. So everybody out there, you should be looking at the balance sheets of the companies. What sector they're in? Are they bond proxies? Especially, there's so many people are chasing yield, have been chasing yield. And paying out big dividend yields typically creates problems with balance sheets potentially cutting that dividend. Now those bond payers are competing with a five and a half percent treasury rate. So a lot of people are moving money out of those dividend payers into treasuries. And that's happening in utility space in a big way. So it's going to be correlated. And if you have higher interest rates, 
secularly, not just this recent surge, but it's pretty clear longer term, rates are moving higher. You need to be avoiding these names. So you should have a plan to get out. You don't want to you don't want to get out when everyone else is panicking and volume is super high like it has been this last week. But you want to be getting out when there's strength. Buy when there's sellers, sell when there's buyers. And you need to wait till there's probably some buyers and everything looks feels good again. That's when you want to be getting out because you need to focus on the longer term trends that are happening within the broad markets. Thanks for the call. Now, from time to time, we receive InvestTalk questions via our website. And this one came in from Mr. Barnes. He says, Justin, I'm getting almost 6% with T-bills. So why would anyone want to invest in stocks in this uncertain market? How does the government pay down the debt? Do they issue more T-bills at higher rates? And that way it can amortize debt away. Is this a reasonable scenario? Do they issue more T-bills at higher rates? I'm not sure that part of the question, but you know, I, I've like I said earlier in the show, short-term treasuries, pretty attractive right now. Pretty attractive. Now that they won't always be that way. The Fed can't keep rates this high for very long without bankrupting the treasury. We know that. But they can do it in spurts. They can do it in spurts. And what they're gonna do is they're going to inflate away the debt. We are in fiscal dominance territory. I mean, the government will spend and the Treasury and the Fed will find ways to finance it. And they're doing that. They're still doing that. Now, they'll have to return to things like QE at some point. But that's not today. So what I will say is, are you going to do better than five and a half to 6% in equities over the long term? Yeah, probably. Why? Because earnings are nominal. Earnings are nominal. Okay. So I would argue long term, you'll still do better with equities and those T-bills rates aren't going to last for very long. All right. We're heading into a break. On the next Invest Talk, we'll look at the story behind this question. FTX customers who lost a fortune on the bankrupt exchange are doubling down on crypto. We're going to get that, to get to that story tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein, ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture. I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, 
listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. Every Invest Talk podcast is made better by your questions. So don't forget to call. And if you've never called, Justin and Steve are waiting now for your finance and investment questions. Invest Talk, 888 99 Chart. Hey, Steve and Justin. Tom from Philadelphia here. I wanted to call with regards to bonds and T bills. I always know if they are liquid, as in. If I buy a three to five year, and after two years, uh, I want to cash out, can I sell that bond? And part B of that, if so, the other day, Justin, you said that you recommend a six-month to four-year shorter duration bond. But if they are liquid and can sell or able to sell, wouldn't a longer, like a 15-year bond, be more advantageous since you can collect the coupon and uh, interest and until maturity, but have such a long horizon to sell. Just uh, something I was thinking about and uh, wanted to get your guys' thoughts on it. Thank you so much for what you guys do. I appreciate it. Well, what you're asking is very straightforward. Treasuries are the most liquid bonds, and I could argue the most liquid assets in the world. They're extremely liquid. So, yes, you can you can sell them with very small spreads, typically 
pennies, sometimes half a penny. And yeah, you you can go sell them. Now, other bonds, if you buy mortgage-backed securities, you buy corporates, they're less liquid, but as long as they are widely traded, then they tend to be pretty liquid and, and you don't have to take too much of a haircut if you want to sell them. I would not go longer. I would not go 15-year bonds. Um, the longer the bond doesn't make it any more or less liquid. In fact, I could argue in this environment, longer terms would make them probably slightly less liquid because if longer-term bonds prices are going down, less and less people would be probably interested in them. But still, they're, they're, they're very liquid. Um, so that would be the only caveat. Focus more, if you're buying treasuries, focus more on duration. That's going to be the most important factor you are going to consider, not liquidity. Obviously, the yields are the yields. That's what you're going to, to get there. Uh, credit risk isn't a thing, but the duration risk is, and you need to be focused on that. Thanks for the call. Let's go talk to Mike. He is in New Hampshire. Wants to talk about CPG, which is Crescent Point Energy. You own it or looking to buy it? Yeah, hey, Justin. Uh, I'm currently looking to buy it. I did own it. I actually got in it at $6 a while ago on a dip and uh, put just a sell order in at 8 And that trade had been executed a bit ago, and I was almost mm-hmm. a little bit bummed that I'd sold it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now on a little bit of a dip below that now. So I was wondering if you thought it was a uh, good energy play to get back into or there's better deals elsewhere. All right, this is Crescent Point Energy. This is an independent EMP company in Western Canada and the United States. Fairly small in the energy space, about a $4.7 billion mark, sorry, $4.27 billion market cap, and modest debt on its balance sheet, but nothing too crazy. Let's see, return equity is at 6%. That's kind of low in this environment. That worries me just a bit. Uh, what else do I have here? The technicals are fine. It has pulled back as of lay with the, the rest of the energy space, but nothing too worrisome. Technicals are, are still fine. Let's see the dividend yield. Dividend yield, about 3.8%. That's fine. The payout ratio is at about 57%. Cash dividend payout ratio is only 23%. So both of those are relatively in line. Shares outstanding. What have they been doing? Eh, they've been buying back shares as of late. That's good. Uh, I have no problem with this, frankly. Now, the question will be, where is that support level? Let me give you that number. Yeah, about 750 is probably the better point to pick this up. I think that's good, good support around that level. Uh, so it's at 788 now. Doesn't sound like a lot, but that's about 4 or 5% lower than here. Uh, but I like the name. I think it's fine. Are there better ones within the space? Yeah, I mean, we own some some better ones, we feel. But this is, this is good, and the technicals are fine. So I'm going to give Crescent Point a thumbs up, and 750 is that support level. Thanks Thank you very call. much. No problem. Now, my perspective today examines what can surely be called the most successful stocks in history. And it's easy to look back with hindsight 2020 and appreciate the power of the returns within these names. And of course, investing is an exercise that requires attention to detail and a strategy. 
strategy that focuses on those details. So let's first set the table. You can invest in almost anything, beer, wine, space, software, pharmaceuticals, whatever. The list goes on. But investors chose these investments for a few major reasons. Some are risk takers. Some are, some are not. Some investors are brand loyal. Some are not. Some are emotional and tend to be greedy. Others are not. The list goes of investing motivations go on. But what, one thing's for sure is that all companies go up and down, but your goal is to find the ones that go up consistently more than they go down consistently. And when you hit the big scores, that's really where the major returns come from. Is when you can find maybe just a handful of names that are not, don't, don't just go up 20, 30, 40%, which sounds great, but talking about hundreds of percent over reasonable amounts of time. Let's go to example number one. Coca-Cola became one of the best performing stocks of all time because of some competitive advantages it created. First off, it's one of the most recognized brands in the world, mainly because of smart advertising. And it was kind of the first mover, right, within the cola space. And they used their strategy of building that brand and building other brands as well, like Sprite and Fanta. And then most recently, Vitamin Water. And then once they had enough brands, they also built out distribution. That was global. They could buy smaller brands and put that into the distribution network. And so the lesson from Coca-Cola is smart advertising can build strong brands. And then distribution can be is equally as valuable as those brands. It's an underappreciated competitive advantage that a lot of companies leverage in order to have consistent high profitability over a long period of time. All right, example number two, Altria, obviously the parent company of Marlboro. They spun off Philip Morris. Now, Marlboro is by, the, by far the most popular cigarette brand in the world. Sold 472 trillion cigarettes just last year. Its biggest competitor, Lucky Strike, owned by British American Tobacco, that sold 107 trillion. In the US alone, Marlboro sales are greater than those of the most prominent competitor brands combined. Think about that. And this has been the best stock in the market over the past 50 years, including reinvested dividends. A dollar invested in Altria in 1968 would have turned into $6,638 by 2015. That's a 663,700% total return or 20.6% annualized. And even though... Smoking rates have gone down. 
company continues to raise its prices and maintain its profitability. All right, next, Amazon. We know what Amazon does. It's very disruptive in the e-commerce space. And several companies in the tech sector, uh, Apple, Alphabet, they've yielded great returns as well. So it's about building a network effect. They've done that with Prime. And instilling the value props that they will bring to their customers. Now, they are in a fight with the government, with the regulators. So this competitive advantage they built could be torn down. So this is an example of, hey, you can build a brand, but you can lose it overnight just as easily. So just looking at these three names and saying, oh, I want to buy those names. It's not the way you invest. It's not just saying these were the best and these are going to be the best. Because I almost guarantee you they won't be. Over the next 50 years, it's unlikely that these will be the three names that will do the best. Now, they can do great. can do very well. But it's about which ones will maintain those competitive advantages. Now, I'd say Amazon's best competitive advantage is their distribution network. Going back to distribution. Being able to deliver things on time in a short period of time. Now, how do they do this? How do they create those high profits? Well, the value of Prime has been estimated to be $1,000, but we only pay, I think it's $100 a year. What they do is they charge their retailers to be on the platform. Those retailers charge a premium to what you can typically find elsewhere online and they pay Amazon a fee and that makes up for their loss on the prime membership. So will the government prevent them from this type of business model? Potentially. So be aware that a competitive advantage can be taken away either by the structure within that particular sector, meaning maybe cost dynamics change within the sector, or maybe a competitor comes in that out innovates, or maybe it's government coming in and shutting down their way of doing business. There are many ways that companies can lose their competitive advantage. And that's why leadership is very important. And you need to be focused on that as well. All right, now let's touch a bit on the home builders. And what you're starting to see is that the home builder stocks are losing their momentum. The home builder ETF is down 8% in the month of September or was down 8%, where the SP was down about 5.2. And a lot of people will say, well, duh, interest rates are going up. That's why they're doing so bad recently. But if you look on the year, home builder stocks are doing very, very well. 
In fact, some of the largest companies, Pulte's up 61%, Toll Brothers at 47, KB Homes 44. And the SP is only up about nine or 10. But recent data is showing that the strength within the home builders is starting to wane. Housing starts were down 11% in August to the lowest level since June of 2020. And new home sales suffered the largest monthly decline since September of last year. While existing home sales fell to their slowest pace since January. So the resurgence in interest rates is certainly starting to impact more than just the resale market. The new home market is starting to suffer as well. And you have companies like KB Homes that reported a quarterly drop in profits from a year earlier for the first time this year. They did raise their revenue outlook for the next fiscal year, but obviously that could change. Now, they're still trading at pretty low valuations, six times forward-looking earnings, whereas their 10-year average is around 10 times. But there's a lot of uncertainty to that forward-looking outlook. And what I'm trying to figure out is, does this break the 200-day moving average, which it's approaching on the, uh, I look at the ITB, ITB, that's the U.S. Home Construction ETF. That's going to give you a pure look at what's happening within those particular companies. And does this say anything about the future of the jobs market? Because that's the main thing I think that will break the new home market. Because if people have jobs and these large home builders are able to offer lower rates, maybe 5% mortgages, which many of them can by buying down the rates, buying points basically on these mortgages and offer a 5, 5.5% five mortgage rate versus what they're getting in the market at 7.5% in the, re, in the resale home market. And that's what's kept them afloat, kept their their margins and their their market share of home sales to double what it historically is. If that changes, if the job market changes, suddenly I think their business will finally break. But until then, I think they're going to do fairly well. And I think secularly, over the longer term, I think they're going to do well in the coming five to ten years. Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm ready to take your questions live, and we're going into our final break. So get your questions in now at 888 chart One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts, and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, I'd like to thank them for the courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. The Puma 51 says, was curious about how you feel about WTI right now. Seems like it found some support, and I picked some more shares at around $4. All right, this is 
W and T offshore, WTI is the symbol. They are engaged in the exploration and production of oil and natural gas primarily in the Gulf of Mexico. So offshore, offshore oil driller. And I think the simple answer is here, why? Why this one? There are other, I'm thinking rig, it's the largest, Transocean, $6 billion market cap there. And that one's relative strength is 98 WTI's relative strength is 26. Why is it performing so poorly? I don't get it. It does have a ton of debt on its balance sheet compared to its market cap. And free cash flow looks to be falling. From $282 million as of the first quarter to the latest quarter of $99 million. I don't like that. So no. Yes, it's at support. But it's consolidating that support. I don't know why you want to look at this versus some of the other offshore oil drillers. I think you can find much better within the oil sector. Thanks for the call. Now let's touch a bit on fiscal dominance. And obviously Jackson Hole Symposium in the end of August is typically focused on monetary policy. It's all about the Federal Reserve. But the most talked about session at that gathering was actually by an academic discussing debt. And this is from the University of California at Berkeley's Professor Barry Eichengreen. And he talked about how huge public debts are piling up. They piled up during the pandemic. And that these debts are not going to decline in the foreseeable future. So it's all going to be about how governments handle these high debt levels while at the same time, Spending on more specific projects to manage the economy more directly. And that's one main argument for fiscal dominance is, you know, monetary policy is a blunt tool. You raise interest rates, lower interest rates, mainly to focus on demand. That's what they're trying to do, raise and lower demand. But we all know there's two sides of it. There's supply and demand. So raising and lower interest rates can also affect Supply as well. So it's a difficult tool to manage the economy with. Whereas if you're spending money on specific projects, you can use more of a scalpel as opposed to a, a hammer. Monetary policy is a hammer. Fiscal policy, if used effectively, can be a scalpel. And so transitioning to a different energy economy, dealing with rising geopolitical tensions. This is all a recipe for really fiscal activism. Government spending more and taking a more prominent role in managing the economic cycle. But they're doing this with rising borrowing costs. And so it's going to be about also taxing efficiently as well. So how politically expedient will be will it be for to tax the younger workers to pay for health care and benefits like social security benefits for older workers? I think a decade or two from now, the millennials are not going to stand for a ton of higher taxes simply to pay for 
boomers to get their Social Security or their Medicare. That's why there's a push to negotiate on Medicare drug prices. And that's already moving forward. And that's the trend that you're going to see is that there's going to be a battle and they're going to do things in the near term that will solve problems, but unlikely unless there's a major, major calamity within the debt markets, it's unlikely they're going to really get the fiscal house in order, but it'll be about inflating the debt away by spending, creating that inflation that will over probably many decades whittle the debt levels down if it's done right, if they're spending that money effectively and efficiently. And that's going to be the big question going forward. Can they? Will they? All right. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. And we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. We've now achieved more than 56 million downloads since it all began. Crazy. Just keeps on climbing thanks to you. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights.